Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and let me welcome you to this edition of Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. This is Season 5, into Episode 22, still working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we're in 1 Corinthians 14, specifically verses 26 through 40, under the topic of the Spirit-filled church. We've got a few more weeks to go in our walk through the 1 Corinthians, um, after that, we're going to start a new season on the Gospel of Luke, and I just wanted to recommend as a resource, sometimes people ask me uh, what books they could read along with the podcast, I'd like to recommend as a resource Ken Bailey's uh, combined book. It's actually two books put together, and it's called Poet and Peasant and Through Peasant Eyes. It's a literary cultural approach to the parables in Luke. It's not easy reading. It's more academically oriented than you might be used to, but it is probably the most excellent background on all of the parables. I, you've heard me speak of Ken Bailey in the past and how much I respect his work. So it's also a time to think about, you might want to start getting together a group of people to use the podcast as a resource for your small group discussions of scripture. Um, and as always, your financial support of the podcast is greatly appreciated. If you're listening on Spotify, you can go through their link in the program notes or go to my website, jeffebert.com, and you'll see more options for financial support there. But again, thank you very much to everyone who has been uh, backing me up financially for this podcast. In the frozen winter of 1734, God did something remarkable. God poured out his Holy Spirit on the congregational church in the small town of Northampton, Massachusetts. First through a group of teenagers, the town troublemakers actually, who all had notorious reputations. God got a hold of them at a Sunday evening meeting and their lives were changed. And it was so dramatic a change, it affected many of their friends and their parents who also then gave their lives to Christ. A spiritual revival began in Northampton, and it spread throughout the community. This revival was led by the church's pastor, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was one of the greatest minds of a colonial America in and outside the church. He was a brilliant theologian and philosopher, but he was also a naturalist and a biologist and a prolific writer. He often spent 13 hours a day working on his various manuscripts, and in prayer. And God used his preaching to crack open New England to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in a truly amazing way. You have to understand that in colonial America, Christianity was the dominant cultural influence, just as it was in all of Western Europe. But the vast majority of people never went to church. Very few people evidenced any kind of real or deep faith in God. Most churches were just as dry as dust, stiff and formal like a rusty old battleship sitting in dry dock encrusted with barnacles. The majority of people were just going through the motions and knew very little of a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards preached about that transforming power of God, and he was joined by other great preachers throughout the colonies, like Gilbert Tennant in New Jersey and George Whitfield, who famously preached under a tree that used to be at the center of Basking Ridge, New Jersey, very near to where I used to be a pastor. This movement of the Holy Spirit in, in New England was called the First Great Awakening. The revival blazed in New England for the next 20 years. 
Jonathan Edwards himself saw 300 people converted to Christ between 1734 and 1734. Now, that's an amazing transformation in a small town. It quickly spread to 150 cities and towns across New England. Now, you remember, the population of New England at that time was just about 300,000. And it's estimated that over 60,000 people converted to Christ in those years. That's 20% of the total population. That would be like 1.8 million people suddenly turning to Christ in the boroughs of New York City. Unbelievable response to the gospel. But the Great Awakening didn't happen without a lot of opposition and criticism. Why? Because this revival was accompanied by what they called back then religious affections, physical and emotional reactions to the work of the Holy Spirit. For example, on July 8, 1741, Edward preached one of his most famous sermons in the Enfield Congregational Church in, in Enfield, Connecticut. Sadly, Jonathan Edwards has been much maligned in our educational system. The only one of his hundreds of sermons that is ever included in most history books is the one entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards is portrayed as though he was some foaming at the mouth, fire and brimstone, pound in the pulpit lunatic. Nothing could actually be further from the truth. Edwards was, a, was actually a quiet, scholarly, academic man. He used no gestures when he preached. He leaned his left elbow on the pulpit, held a carefully prepared manuscript in his left hand, and he read his sermons word for word. He was not showy at all or emotional or manipulative. But people were so affected by what he said, so moved by the spirit who backed up his message, it was recorded that, and I quote, Grown men fell down as though they were shot, and women went into hysterics, unquote. People literally had to, held onto their seats to keep from falling out. Men and women stood up, rolled on the floor, started running around and barking like dogs, making all kinds of strange noises, perhaps speaking in tongues. Edwards actually had to stop his sermon several times to tell people to shut up and to please sit down and be quiet. After the service, these same affections continued throughout the night, as people went back to their homes. 500 people gave their lives to Christ in that one day. Can you imagine the uproar this caused in the sleepy little staid northeast town of Enfield? Jonathan Edwards wrote several books to try and explain and defend what he witnessed in the Great Awakening. He wrestled with how to discern if something was a genuine movement of the Holy Spirit and when it was just emotionalism, especially when accompanied by such unusual signs. How can you know if something is really from God? When the Spirit moves, how does a church keep from falling into excess or the misuse of spiritual gifts? Now, how do you keep the, from hysterics, emotionalism, or slipping into bizarre behaviors that aren't really true manifestations of the Holy Spirit? Well, guess what? That's the exact same problem Paul is dealing with in his letter to the Christians in this ancient city of Corinth. How to keep the church on track. And in a sense, today's passage is a summary of issues Paul has already addressed, especially with what we now call the more charismatic spiritual gifts, like speaking in tongues, prophecy, and how to express proper freedom in worship. Paul's main point today is that Christian worship should always reflect, always mirror the character of the one being worshipped, Jesus Christ. I don't have time to, to take the time to read the entire passage. I'd really encourage you to go over all of chapter 14 on your own. Our scripture is just going to be verses 26 through 40. 
And this comes after he has spent some time discussing the spiritual gifts, especially on how to properly express, express the gift of speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. So let's listen in to Paul as he continues, starting in verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the saints. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or spiritually gifted, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if they ignore this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. We live in a time when the church of Jesus Christ needs to be at its very best. The world needs the church to be healthy, full of God's love, helping to bring reconciliation and healing to fractured people and groups we see all around us as God's hands and feet in the real world. The church needs to flourish. That's why I like the mission statement for the Presbyterian denomination I belong to, the Covenant Order of Evangelical Presbyterians, which is nicknamed ECO. Go to their website at eco-pres.org and you can read it. Their mission statement is to build flourishing churches that make disciples of Christ. To flourish means to grow, to expand, to prosper, to increase, to proliferate. To flourish means for the church to be all that Christ wants it to be. And to do that, the church must fully experience and embrace the presence and the working of the Holy Spirit, must use every avenue that the Holy Spirit offers, not choking off what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he has been showing that the Holy Spirit offers a kind of spiritual toolbox for building your faith. And to be a flourishing church that makes flourishing Christians, we need to be open to using all the tools in that toolbox. Otherwise, it would be like a carpenter trying to build a house without a saw or a cook trying to prepare a five-course meal with only one small saucepan and a Bunsen burner. I mean, you could probably do it, but just barely. The toolbox of the Holy Spirit for the church is what are called our spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are unique qualities and abilities that God gives to believers in conjunction with their own personalities and temperaments to build up his church and carry out his witness in the world. And throughout scripture, we're told that every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts that match our personalities to help us find our niche, our place of focused service. When you know what your gifts are and you put them to work in a ministry God has given you, that's how you find real satisfaction and blessing. You find your groove. You sense momentum building in your life. You sense that it fits. You're in your lane. You see the Holy Spirit kind of working through you, which is the best feeling in the world. Seeing God work in someone else's life through you. The big question to ask is this. Are we open to God moving fully in our midst through the Holy Spirit? Are we fully open to the Holy Spirit? That's where the Corinthians were tripping up. Tripping up over two of the more unusual gifts of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues and prophecy. First, let's get some background on speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues as a work of the Holy Spirit is first seen in Acts chapter 2 at the birthday of the church on what we now call Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples in an upper room and then they went out into the streets, the courtyards, to tell others about Jesus. And here's what happened. This is Acts 2 verses 5 through 11. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own native language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So people from all over the world had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, and all these world travelers were amazed that each one of them heard the wonders of God proclaimed in his or her own native tongue. The followers of Christ were speaking known human languages. That's the first expression of speaking in tongues. They were speaking real known human languages. That's important to remember. Known human languages that people actually spoke. The hearers understood what was being said. The tongues were a sign to those who had not yet embraced Jesus that something important from God was taking place. This event of tongues prompted a response on their part and thousands believed. So here, the gift of tongues is the spirit-given ability to speak in a known language that is not known to the speaker, but is understood by others present. Here, speaking in tongues is a sign to unbelievers that God's spirit was being poured out in a new way on the church. And it was a real attention grabber. It caused people to ask, what does this all mean? And that opened the door for Peter to share the gospel. Peter preached, and you know, 3,000 people responded. We see this pattern repeated in Acts two more times, first for the Samaritans and then for the Gentiles. Speaking in tongues was part of the signs and wonders Jesus poured out as the, as the gospel spread out in expanding circles, as Jesus said it would in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. First to Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the Gentile world just as Jesus had commanded. But the gift of tongues is different in 1 Corinthians 14. There it is described as a spiritual gift given for the common good of the body 
that they may or may not that may or may not be a known earthly language. Paul describes it this way back in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men, that's an understandable human language, or of angels, now that's a language that is not understandable. And this kind of speaking in tongues comes in two ways. First, a private prayer language where the person praying kind of gets caught up in sort of an ecstatic state in a way that sort of bypasses the mind and connects them to God himself. This kind of speaking in tongues is not for other people, but for the connection between the prayer and God himself, for the person's benefit, not really for the whole body. It's not a known language, so it is unintelligible to those who are listening. It sounds like gibberish and nonsense, and that's why it should be kept personal and private. Otherwise, Paul says, outsiders will think you're crazy. It's exactly what he says in verse 23. And I quote, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are all out of your mind? Okay, that's 100% true. Speaking personal prayer language in a worship service sounds like gibberish. And this is what turns so many people off to the whole subject of speaking in tongues today, because frequently in the charismatic and Pentecostal Christians who supposedly have these gifts, they don't follow Paul's instruction here on how the gifts are supposed to be used. You'll see churches where everybody's speaking in tongues in their own private language, prayer language, all at the same time, and it's absolute chaos. It's just gibberish. It's not edifying to anyone else who's there. That's not how Paul says the gift of tongues are to be used. That kind of individualized chaos actually has no place in corporate Christian worship. That's for private devotion to the Lord. Paul wants all the gifts of the Spirit to be used in the church, including speaking in tongues, but it's got to be used the right way. He clearly says not all Christians are going to speak in tongues. You don't need to, you don't have to. Does it make you special or closer to God? Speaking in tongues is not a sign of a superior kind of Christian or that someone who speaks in tongues has more of the Holy Spirit than others. It is not a sign of a second blessing. Every believer is given all of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is a legitimate gift given to some believers, but not to all. And Paul says it's not the most important gift. So if you don't speak in tongues, and I don't, don't sweat it. The third way Paul talks about the gift of tongues is within Christian worship. And he's crystal clear about it. In worship, any manifestation of the gift of tongues must, must always be coupled with the spiritual gift of interpretation. The gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation function together exactly like the person who has the gift of prophecy. It brings a message from God to the church. Speaking in tongues in church without interpretation is not what God desires, and it should not happen in worship. Speaking in tongues without interpretation should not be allowed in worship. If you've got the gift of tongues, you have to remain quiet in the body unless an interpreter is present because listening to unintelligible mumblings is of no benefit to the congregation. Paul is so clear about this, but unfortunately, this is the command in Scripture that is generally ignored in the modern practice of speaking in tongues. Paul is very specific. In church worship, all tongues require interpretation, period. Because the only use of spiritual gifts in worship is for the building up of the church, not for your own private experience with Jesus. But this is so completely ignored in Pentecostal churches that I, I think they have, they're going to have to account for that before the Lord. 
Now, on the positive side, we have to recognize how the spiritual gift of tongues has altered the course of Christianity over the last uh, century through the Pentecostal movement. Now, the Pentecostal movement obviously takes their name from the outpouring of the Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost that we just read about. The modern Pentecostal movement began with a man named Charles Parham in a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, around the turn of the 20th century. January 1st, 1901, is seen as the beginning of the modern Pentecostal movement in America. Pentecostals teach that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues, that you don't really have the full Holy Spirit unless you also have the gift of speaking in tongues. The movement spread rapidly through Bible colleges and missionaries in the 20th century. The Assemblies of God denomination formed in 1914 as a result, and it became one of the fastest growing denominations of the past century. The more mainstream version of Pentecostalism is called the Charismatic Movement, which is generally less extreme, and the gift of tongues is seen as one of God's gifts, but not essential to all believers. The Charismatic Movement goes cuts across all Protestant denominations, even the Roman Catholic Church, even Presbyterians, who are normally thought of as being God's frozen chosen, I mean, we can warm up just a little bit. So raise your hands, you charismatic Presbyterians. I know you're out there. So we need a positive conversation about speaking in tongues because non-charismatics often get hung up on charges of fanaticism and counterfeit spirituality, even heresy. And a lot of ex-Pentecostals and ex-charismatics will talk about how phony it all is. I mean, I had friends in seminary who grew up in the Pentecostal church movement and they could fake speaking in tongues at a moment's notice. Just at the drop of a hat, they could go right into it because it was something they learned to do as a child. It was expected of them. In order to fit into the church, you had to speak in some kind of gibberish in order to be accepted in their church community. And so they just did what everyone else did. They just mimicked what they heard adults do or others do. But when they grew up, they realized it wasn't real in them. It wasn't from the Holy Spirit. And so speaking in tongues is often very open to problems, to counterfeit expressions of the gift, to fakery, unfortunately. But even with the problems, we must understand that tongues is a legitimate gift that God gives for his own purposes. And we should be grateful that in the 20th century, charismatic Christians spawned the most explosive movement in Christianity since the Reformation. Pentecostals and Charismatics stimulated incredible growth and worldwide evangelism in Africa, South America, Asia, even in the United States. There is a huge growing population of Charismatic believers around the world who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's be thankful for God, to God for moving in this way, even as we may legitimately disagree with some aspects of the way the gift is being expressed. But tongues is actually not the main point of this chapter. Paul says, desire prophecy more. Prophecy is speaking the word of God. Old Testament prophets were given directly the very words of God, and their message became scripture for us because they were a mouthpiece for God. Old Testament prophecy involved both foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling of some future events, you know, like the birth of the Messiah, but also forthtelling on how to apply God's message to their real-life situation right back then. The New Testament puts the prophecy emphasis on forthtelling, applying God's word to particular situations, explaining the present 
in light of the revelation of God, but always under the great authority, the greater authority of Scripture. Legitimate prophecy does not produce some new word of God coming to us that will contradict the teachings of what has already been revealed to us in Scripture. That's how cults begin. Someone says they have a new word, a new revelation from God, and gullible people believe it. The purpose of New Testament prophecy is to build up the people of God. But these gifts were getting out of control in Corinth. The focus was moving off the giver, God himself, to the gifts. And worship was turning into chaos, which did not deflect, reflect the nature of the God we worship. God is a God of order, Paul says, not chaos, not frenzy. And our worship should reflect that. Behavior in church, that's what was tripping up the Corinthians. And that also spilled over onto the emerging role of women. What Paul says here about women not speaking in church, it's good for us to look at this to illustrate how important it is to take individual verses in context of the Holy Letter and the whole of the New Testament. Because you can prove just about anything if you take a verse out of context. You've heard me talk on that numerous times. If people just isolate these verses and forget the whole of this letter, Paul comes across as a hater of women. But it's just not true. Remember in the first century Greece, women and children were the property of their husbands and fathers. The treatment of women would be like a modern-day Muslim country under strict Sharia law. Women wore veils over their heads, never went out of the house without a male family member. A woman never spoke to a man who was not a member of the family unless they were prostitutes. Men and women never worshipped together. In every aspect, women were second class. The gospel, and Paul particularly, was a great emancipator of women in Christ. Paul was the one, remember, who taught that equality of men and women before God. He taught that men and women should worship together for the very first time, taught that men and women were equally gifted by the Holy Spirit. But problems erupted. People were not used to it, and some women were taking their newfound freedoms too far and were offending many in the surrounding community. We saw that back in, I think it was chapter 11, having to do with hair being covered or uncovered. It'd sort of be like an American Christian woman in Saudi Arabia driving around in a convertible wearing a swimsuit and calling that Christian freedom. Well, you'd get thrown in jail for that today in Saudi Arabia, and that would not help the gospel. You might be free in Christ to do it, but you're not free in Saudi Arabia to do it. Paul understood that there had to be some sensitivity to culture around them. Some of the women in Corinth were developing a sense of arrogance and were disrupting the worship services in the exact same way that speaking in tongues without interpretation was a disruption. And Paul's answer to both of those situations is, you got to be quiet. Paul tells them to be quiet, just like he tells the folks who are speaking in tongues out of turn. That's the issue. It has nothing to do with gender. God is a God of order, not chaos. He's not saying women should never, ever, ever open their mouths. We've already seen in previous chapters Paul's positive view of women praying and prophesying and speaking uh, prophetic words in worship to the whole congregation. So he can't mean you can't ever, ever speak in church. That's, that's a false understanding of this passage. In the New Testament, we see Paul raising up women as leaders in the early church. This is an, odd, an admonition against one example of excess, focusing on self and not the health of the whole body. So this is a command specifically to correct the problem in their situation in Corinth, and it's not a command to the whole church universally. 
Again, Paul's main point is that we are to reflect the character of Jesus in our worship. And speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy may not relate to you and your life with Christ, but you should be aware of your own spiritual gifts. That's important because it will help you to know where you fit in the body of Christ and where God may be calling you to serve others. If you'd like to explore what your spiritual gifts uh, mean, you can often go to on, on online and you'll see spiritual gift assessments um, that can help you to kind of narrow down what your uh, spiritual gift might be. Because God wants us to be a church that is filled with his spirit in all its fullness. So let's be open to the ways Christ wants to pour out his spirit upon us. All his gifts, all his presence, so that the church will be built up and strengthened and be all that Christ wants us to be. Have a great week.